The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So as is most weeks, um, I, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholas, and it's that famous scene most people know, right, where he's in the courtroom, Jack Nicholas is on the stand, and um, uh, Tom Cruise is the lawyer kind of badgering him as a witness. And Jack Nicholas looks at him and says, you want answers? Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. Jack Nicholas says, you can't handle the truth. And I, lo- I love that scene. Um, but I started thinking about that. There's a lot of truth in that truth that we can't handle the truth. Right? I mean, think about when I ask my wife after I come home with a fresh haircut, I say, hey, baby, <laughs> like the new haircut? What I really want her to say is, oh, yeah, I really like the haircut. But if that's not the truth, it's not what she's going to say. And so I had to admit to myself this week, I don't really like the truth. I like my version of the truth. I like the truth that caters and flatters towards me, angled my way towards my favor. And that's really the kind of conversation we hear everywhere today is that the truth is relative, right? The truth is whatever you want it to be. The truth is totally subjective. Your truth isn't my truth. But even in that, there has to be some baseline truth somewhere. Even even if you are here, or know someone, and they say, you know what, there is no truth. That is a truth. That's an absolute. So there, there is a truth, and, and it is not subjective. The, the, the distinctly Christian version of the truth says that it hinges on one man's life and work. And so this is not unique, though. We're not living in unique times. In, in Later in Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter four, he says, there's a time coming when all people will have itching ears and they'll actually tweak the truth for their own pleasure. That was thousands of years ago and here we are in the same situation because the truth about the truth is that it must inform every area of life or you don't really believe it to be the truth. So for example, if you believe nothing happens when you die, that has to change the way you spend your time now, the way you live, where you put your your energy and your effort and what you're building for. If you believe something happens, must inform every area of life. And so what we want to consider this morning in the last part of our four-week pause on stewardship is what does it mean to be stewards of the truth, the Christian version of the truth, the gospel. And it's, it's, it's intensely important because when we go back to the parable that we've been launching from in these last four weeks, the parable of the talents, it's Matthew 25, we see that there is actually real benefits to being a good steward, right? You get joy and peace. He says, 
job well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter the joy of your master. So good stewardship equals joy. And we see also that bad or poor stewardship equals wrath and judgment. And so stewardship is very, very important for us to consider. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, this is how one should regard us, meaning Christians, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And it is required that stewards be found faithful. And so the text for this morning, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, turn there, please, or scroll there, or flip there. I'm gonna reread it. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. <clears throat> this is, for some context, this is Paul's final, final letter before he dies. And so these are really his, his parting words. He's done life and ministry with Timothy for some time at this point. And he's writing it from a jail cell in Rome shortly before he'll be, what we believe, uh, beheaded. And over and over and over again in this letter, Paul is begging Timothy to not depart from the truth. And so we're going to think about this text and stewardship of the truth in, in three parts. Understanding the truth, applying the truth, and sharing the truth. And when I'm, and when I'm saying truth, I'm using gospel, a distinctly Christian version of the truth. So understanding the truth, applying the truth, and sharing the truth. And so we see the first part under, uh, with understanding the truth. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, follow the sound words that you've heard from me. Well, what, what sound words, right? Just so there's no confusion, what are the sound words in which Christians have based their life and their future on? And it goes all the way back to uh, creation, where God, being totally and infinitely satisfied in his own company, he didn't need friends. The Trinity was all he needed, and he had it. And so the way the way Edwards, Jonathan Edwards explains it is that creation is really sort of an overflow or a, a bursting at the seams of God's godness. Right? He was so full of his own godness that he burst at the seams and creation occurred. And so we see him create Adam and Eve as, as little mirrors or image bearers of his goodness. And we know the story, they fail. And so he has to institute laws and commandments, a way of moral living for his people. And so in Genesis 15, when he tells Abraham, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And the pattern of life for these people is disappointing, it's pathetic, it's confusing, because over and over again, they have every advantage to love God and serve him. They have everything stacked in their favor 
and they never do it. They can never bring themselves to love God. And so Hebrews 8 tells us why that was the case. Because the old covenant, prior to Christ's coming, required obedience through law and command. But the, the thing that the law could never do is change someone's heart. And so in Hebrews 8, the writer tells us, because we know here, you'll never be able to obey long term. There's no longevity in that. Think about uh, uh, speeding, right? I speed. Speed limit signs don't affect me, right? They just, it, they don't collision. And I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. Something like that will change your affections. Law and rules won't. And so what Christ came and did, Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 tells us, is that he, he gave the people a new heart. So now you have a new heart with new affections and a new fountain with new waters flowing in a new direction. And, and he writes with his own finger those laws on the heart of his people. And so we struggle with this but we're kept and persevere in obedience because we have a new heart. And so now we relate to God through kindness. His kindness draws us to repentance, not his wrath and his judgment. And so that, that's, that's the retroactive version of the truth, the Christian truth. Right? That's hindsight. But one of the great things about truth is that it's also forward-looking, right? The truth not only informs us from a reverse view, but it also must inform what we hope to be. And the Bible is laced with what the truth of the gospel gives the Christian. Ephesians 2, 5, and, 5 through 7, tells us that there's a time coming where we as finite creatures will be before God and he will spend, it says the coming ages, eternity, unleashing and pouring out his infinite, and it says immeasurable, without measure, unable to be measured. So if you have something that can't be measured, it's infinite. And then you have these finite beings over here he takes his infinite goodness and kindness and mercy and every day throughout all eternity gives us a fresh and a new hope and joy that's ever increasing for all of eternity. Isn't that kind of a good deal? I mean, think about it. If I said, hey, look, you're gonna be happier tomorrow than you are today. You take that deal? Okay. And then if we add a, a specifically Christian aspect to it, not only will you be happier, but you'll be happier in the only place where happiness is actually found. And so that's our, that's our future hope. And he set apart a people to be able to dispense this infinite kindness on. But why? Why? 
Deuteronomy 7 says, it's not because you were a people that were more in number. It's because I loved you. And just in case we're tempted to be puffed up, why did he love us? 1 Samuel 12, 22, for his name's sake. And what's interesting about that is I think that touches on one of the first things that I find myself doing with the gospel. Is I make the gospel the gospel of Justin and not the gospel of Jesus. I, I, I make the truth of the reality of the person and work of Christ actually about me and not about Jesus. And it, go, it goes something like this. That the Lord saved me from X, Y, or Z. Saved me from drugs. This is what the Lord's doing in me. This is the ministry the Lord's given me. And those, those things are good and they're true and they're right. But what subtly happens is our aim, the aim of our heart, makes the gospel actually about us. And so then we feel entitled. And we feel offended. And we start viewing God the way that we think God should be. Right? We tell God to come down here instead of us going up there. And what happens is that we start to actually change the gospel. And it's no different than a non-Christian does. They take whatever truth they want, make it fit their own preferences, and run with it. And I find myself doing that even as a Christian. And so what we must remember when we're thinking about understanding the truth rightly, because that's a key component of good stewardship, is proper understanding, is that the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is not that God saved us, rescued us from our sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that he paid the price for our sins. There is a huge difference in the two. We didn't merely have a banker come and forgive our mortgage debt because we were nice people. We had the poorest neighbor sacrifice everything that they have to pay off our mortgage when we did nothing to deserve it. God did not just save us or rescue us from our sins. The gospel says he paid the price for it. And in paying the price, it changed everything. The real gospel is what we see in Colossians 1. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and he reconciled to himself all things, making peace, so that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, have now been reconciled. So we once were alienated and hostile, that's past, and he's reconciled us, that's present. It says, to present you holy and blameless. That's the future. That's the gospel. And one of the benefits, I think, what, what, what happens 
when we actually remind ourselves daily of the real gospel. Not the gospel of self, but the distinctly Christian biblical view of the truth is we actually then don't subconsciously make God's approval of us based on us. Because if the gospel isn't about us, the gospel is about Jesus, then we don't believe that God's approval or pleasure or satisfaction in us and of us is based on us. It's based on Jesus. What a relief, right? Because we know that God is well pleased with his son. His affection for us, his approval of us, his goodness to us, his grace in us, it doesn't move based on us because it's the gospel of the grace of Jesus. And all of God's pleasure is rooted in his son. And his son, it says, is the exact image, the imprint of all that the father is the visible representation of the invisible God. Christ is God. So God's pleasure in his son is his pleasure in himself. And so it takes us off the hook. Paul, in his letter here, is pleading with Timothy to never drift from these words. It has been the pattern of Christians and men to relativize the truth for their own benefit. That's how we have different denominations today. That's how we have different belief systems because people have subtly altered the truth. And the reality is, unless we remind ourselves every day of what the Bible promises us is the truth, we will drift. And you know the worst kind of drifting is the one you're not aware of. One of the most harmful things that we could do outside of simply not believing the gospel is to misapply it is to misuse it, is to create it for us. And so that's understanding the truth, and so the next logical step is applying the truth, right? So if, if, if we realize, we, okay, we need to remind ourselves daily of what is the biblical Christian version of the truth, then we can apply it. And that's the second half of the text we read, verse 14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So obviously what's been entrusted to us, the truth, has some sort of value. No, nobody guards something that's not valuable. You ever guarded a bologna sandwich? No. It doesn't have any value. Actually, has a, bologna has a negative value in my book. <laughs> I hate Right? We only guard 
that which we deem to be valuable. And so Paul tells Timothy here, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And he he uses language throughout the letter like fan into flame, remind them of these things, follow my teaching, continue in what you've heard, preach the word. These are action-oriented words. And that's what we think about when we think about application, isn't it? Doing. To apply something, we must do something. And Paul seems to be pretty clearly focused on Timothy's effort here. Remember, remind, do your best, do the work, avoid, follow, guard. So how are we to square that up? Timothy, or Paul rather, clearly wants Timothy to put forth effort. So does an effort in applying the truth, is that good enough? Does that work? Matthew 7 tells us that people who give good effort still go to hell. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do all these things in your name, and he will say to them, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. So how do we square up the tension that Paul has created? Timothy, give effort, but your effort actually doesn't save you. It's the first part of the verse. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Then we read, guard the good deposit entrusted you. So what I think Paul's after towards Timothy is not his effort in keeping and doing but his effort in cultivating a heart and life. It's very different. Timothy, why do I keep saying that? Paul, Timothy didn't write the letter. Paul knows that the only way someone can keep God's commandments is through the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us but that doesn't let Timothy off the hook for his own effort. But his effort is not in doing, it's in cultivating a a platform, a heart that can receive and apply the truth of the gospel. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3, the verse that says, uh, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but only God can make it grow. So when we think about applying the truth, what we ought to be aiming for is not fruitfulness, but faithfulness. Because it's not in doing, but in cultivating hearts and lives that can take the truth of the gospel that he's written on our hearts and apply it to our own lives knowing ultimately that only the Holy Spirit can shake that kind of fruit within us. And then what happens is what we see in Galatians 4. 
Christ begins to be formed in us. And that's what we want. Look, I want to be more patient 10 years from now than I am today. I want to be more loving. I want to have more self-control, more kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness. I want more of Christ visible in my life 25 years from now than it is today. That only happens if Christ is being formed inside of the Christian. I can't make myself more loving. I've tried and given up. I can't do it. But what I can do is the hard work that Paul is asking Timothy to do is to labor on cultivating a life that makes it possible for the the Holy Spirit to execute on that Christ-likeness. So so here are, I think, three helpful ways that we could cultivate a life and heart for maximum Christness being formed in us. Three things. And it's not exhaustive, but it's what I thought about. Talk about the gospel more. Just talk about it more. Talk about the truth of Jesus more often. We do this funny thing where Jesus is like, um, like a lunchbox, right? When do, you, when, when do you bring out your lunchbox? At lunchtime. And then once you're done with your lunch, you put your lunchbox up. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is like breathing. It should be all-encompassing in every area of our lives. And the only way we do that is to create an environment where we talk about it more with friends, with families, with Christians, with non-Christians, with spouses, with children. Let's talk about the gospel more. Number two, we ought to spend time evaluating our progression in Christ-likeness. I heard something the other day. It said that Christians are pretty hard set against New Year's resolutions. I've been saved by grace through faith alone. I don't need New Year's resolutions. Well, that's true, the first part. We ought to be growing as people. It's a good thing to grow as a person as a father, as a husband, as a business owner, as an employee, as a church member. And we need to be evaluating our progress in this. And guess who, by the way, is the worst person to evaluate your own progress? It's yourself. It goes back to our, uh, our distaste for the truth. I'll ask my wife, I did this like six months ago. I said, what fruits of the spirit? <laughs> what fruits of the spirit? am I not doing well in? I'm not going to tell you what she said. <laughs> but I can say there were, more, there were more nays than yays, okay? And she was right. Because those closest to us are probably the best ones to help us evaluate our, our progress in faithfulness. 
Spend time asking questions that you don't want to hear the answers to. But because God's approval of you isn't rooted in yourself because it's not the gospel of self, it's okay what they say. It's helpful what they say. Number three, and I'll move on. Create a a lifestyle that puts speed bumps in your daily, weekly, monthly, annual schedule that makes you think about the gospel, right? Our, our, our bend for most of us is autopilot, is cruise control. And it's phones and Netflix and all these other things that just help us kind of go into autopilot, cruise control. It'd be like three weeks, I wake up, I'm like, what have I thought about for 20 days? But if you, if you put weekly check-ins with your community group or an annual, or I'm sorry, a, week, a monthly date night where you and your spouse talk specifically about what God's doing or a, a devotion time at the end of the night with the family, putting speed bumps in place to help wake us up. I think those things would be helpful in, in cultivating Hearts aimed at faithfulness and not just fruitfulness. Because Paul's Paul's main aim here is that the truth of the gospel be applied not at the deed level merely, but at the heart level. And if we're trying to fight the application of the gospel at the deed level, we are literally on the wrong battlefield. I mean, imagine showing up for battle and it's like, where is everybody? There's nobody there. When we try to fight applying the truth and having Christ being formed in us at the deed, the doing, the application level, we're fighting a battle with ourselves. It's done at the heart level by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we take this, right? We applying the truth at the heart level, doing the, the hard work of cultivating introspectively. Perfect. Now we all become more Christ-like and head towards heaven. That would be incomplete. That would be poor stewardship. What is the last thing Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore, right? Go therefore. I hear you. How do we share the truth of the gospel with others? This This may be the most important part of the sermon. How do we share the gospel with others? The easy answer or the obvious answer is through our words, right? How can they believe if they have not heard? It's Romans 10. 
I want to suggest that the New Testament specifically tells us that there is a more excellent way to share the gospel by loving one another. First Peter, above all, love one another. First John 3. Not just in words, but in deed and truth. Love one another. By this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is not a new commandment. Go back to Leviticus 19. Levitical law says, love your neighbor. Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 6 and says, you have heard that it was said, love thy neighbor as thyself. That love for your neighbor is sort of a, a halfway love. It's not, it's, not, it's not actually all encompassing love. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm calling you to a deeper love. I'm calling you to a different kind of love. A love that is towards even those people that hate you. A love that is so concerned with someone else that they'll, I'll die for you. Don't just love your neighbor. Love those that hate you and persecute you. The love that Jesus has called the New Testament Christian too, is so much deeper. But then he tells us, the only way they'll know you're a Christian is if you love. The primary way that we are good stewards of the gospel of Jesus horizontally is by loving one another. And it's not just in sharing the gospel with non-Christians. That's obvious. It is actually unloving to not share the gospel with a non-Christian. If we believe, as Jonathan Edwards says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, there is nothing better than God. To not give someone that is to be unloving. But it also applies Christian to Christian. 1 Peter 4, I'm gonna turn there. 1 Peter 4. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The way that we love Christians is by using all that we are and all that we have, our time, 
our treasures, our talents, to serve and edify others so that they get more of Christ. And we do that for the non-Christian and for the Christian. uh, Paul says to Timothy, chapter two, verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jamin, why are you singing? For us. Why am I preaching? For us. Why are we doing community groups? For us, that we may know and see and taste more of Jesus. Because stewardship of the gospel for the Christian. It's about understanding it, yes. It's about applying it, yes. It's about sharing it by loving one another and using our gifts and our time and our talents and our treasures. But it's about persevering till the end. Making it to the end. And I can only do that with your help. I cannot be a good husband or a good father or a good church member unless you help me. I don't have all that I need in and of myself to do it. I need you and you need me and we need each other or we will not persevere till the end. And who's our example in this? Who demonstrated the ultimate act of love? Why did he do it? What is is his purpose? Is it to forgive us of our sins? No. No. only? Is it to give us a sense of joy or peace or satisfaction? No, not really. Those are benefits. First Peter 3, to bring us to God. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus has brought us to God and with God and in him and through him is fullness of joy. Let me conclude with this. Let's just be, let, let's just be clear. Let's, right, a lot was said. We were all over the Bible. What does it mean to be a good steward of the truth of the glorious gospel? To understand it, we have to know it. We just, we have to know it. We have to remind ourselves every day of the real gospel.
Not the gospel that our coworker tells us or the business or that our paychecks tell us. Not the gospel that our friends or approval or fear of man or any of those things or shame or guilt. And I'm not minimizing those things. But they twist the gospel. We have to know it. Secondly, we have to apply it. And we apply it here, not here. Because when you apply it here, it makes its way out here. And we have to share it. And we share it through loving one another. By using our times, our talents, our treasures. To bring others that don't know him into the joy of knowing him. And to keep those that know him in the joy that is knowing him. So let us follow the pattern of the sound words that we have heard that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And as members of this local church, let's guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.